Well, it is a true joy to be here almost one year to the day from last year when we planted Burua Presbyterianska Cherka. And I believe it's the 30th is the one year anniversary. Is that right, Hovar? I believe I didn't. I forgot to look at the calendar. I believe it was the 30th which was your first uh, worship service as a church last year. And uh, it's just amazing to see what God has done since then. Can you believe it? I mean, time goes really fast. And all of a sudden, here we are. The gospel is being preached. Ponorsk in Norwegian, every Lord's Day. You all are faithfully gathering together to worship. The ministry and Stavanger as well continues, and God has been very faithful to us all uh, this year. But with all the excitement, you might have also experienced this fact that the honeymoon is over. I know that's a a phrase, at least in in English, you know, and the honeymoon is over where all the, the kind of the newness of life wears off. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, here it is. Not everything uh, goes quite the way you want it to go. You know, I think we would all love to see people from the mountains flooding in to gather, to worship with you, to say, oh, right, there's a church that's preaching the word of God. But it's not happening as we would want it to happen. We would love to see the same thing in Stavanger, people flooding in. There's a church not preaching man-centered messages, but actually preaching the word of God. And people will flood in, but it doesn't always happen that way. And I know, uh, as Hovar and Tomas have shared, you've had more than one visitor who has come and complained about your theology and your view of the church and Israel and, and things of that, that nature. And uh, you've had to deal with things like that too. So you're already facing adversity. And really, you are now at this stage when the honeymoon's over, what are you going to do about it? You know, when the going gets tough, what are you going to do? You know, and that's a message for us as churches, but it's also for us as Christians. When the newness of being a Christian wears off, what are you going to do when the adversity and the hardship comes? And that's why Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church. He wrote it because he needed to encourage the saints who have moved past the honeymoon phase and are now facing real life. There was a lot of stuff going on in Philippi. For one, Paul is now in chains. Paul has been imprisoned for his gospel message. And so their leader is now behind bars. And that would be, I think you could understand, great cause for discouragement. More than that, there are envious and ambitious and self-interested preachers pitting their ministry against Paul's. They're preaching out of envy for Paul. More than that, you have Judaizers, people that are calling these Christians to go back to the Old Testament law and to the law of Moses to be justified before God. And also other false teachers are coming in and are deceiving and deluding members in the churches in Philippi. You also have earthly-minded apostates, people who are walking away and who Paul says in chapter 3 have now become enemies of the cross of Christ. 
So people you used to sit and worship with are now enemies of the gospel or leaders that Paul served, church planners that Paul served with have now become enemies of the cross of Christ. And then on top of that, then the Philippian church sharing in the shame of the Apostle Paul. And so all the good, fun, new stuff of being a church and of being a Christian has totally eroded away. And now they're faced with this reality that if they're going to follow Jesus, they are going to be enemies of the world. And so what are they going to do about it? And Paul writes with great concern to the Philippians, and we need to hear this message today as well. Because if we don't have an answer, if we don't have something anchored in our souls to be our ballast when the storms strike the side of our ship, what happens? We lose confidence in God. We lack unity. We start fighting amongst ourselves. We lose joy. We remain vulnerable to Satan's attack. And some may even fall away after false gospels and false teachers. So my argument today, we're going to focus on one verse this morning, which we'll get to in a moment. But my argument this morning, which I believe is Paul's argument, is that in order to have confident joy, confident, persevering joy as Christians, we must be anchored in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints. There's these two doctrines that Paul is going to anchor us in and anchor the church at Philippi in so that they would persevere through the trials and through the suffering. That's the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and of the perseverance of the saints. And we're going to flesh that out this morning in one verse where Paul hits both of these points in one verse. And so our scripture text this morning, and I would encourage you to keep your Bible open to this verse, is Philippians 1.6. Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So I'm going to argue this point in, uh, with three points this morning. Number one, we have a confident joy Because God began the good work in us. Number one, God began the good work in us. There's no greater cause for joy than knowing that you are God's project. There's no greater cause for joy than knowing that you are God's project. See, we are fickle, we make mistakes, and we're prone to to doubt ourselves. Have you ever like bought a house or a car or something expensive and then questioned whether or not you should have bought that thing or did I buy the right thing or should I, should I have really done this instead of that? You know, if the decision is up to us, it's really easy to doubt, did I do the right thing? 
To know that our origin as Christians, as you individually as a Christian, is from God, changes everything. There's no mistake if you are a Christian. And that's where Paul begins. He says that becoming a Christian does not begin with your decision. Now, that's where here in verse 6, Paul emphasizes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He says in verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you. And then he goes on. He front loads this verse to encourage the Christians at Philippi with the truth that it was God who began the work in you. It wasn't something that you thought of one day. God began that work in you. It's not an accident that you are a Christian. God is the initiator. He's the one who by his sovereign grace has made you a new creation in Christ. Not only that, Paul will go on later in the letter to say that it's actually God who made it possible for you to believe. In verse 29 of chapter 1, Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him. God has granted you faith. And that changes everything for us as Christians, to know that it is God who chose you and who has given you faith. You are not a believer by accident. And Paul says that this miracle in verse 6 is a good work. It's not just an okay work or a misguided work. It's a good work. And why is it good? It's good because he has saved you from slavery in the kingdom of darkness. It's good because he has united you to Jesus Christ. It's good because he's given you the Holy Spirit as a down payment of your inheritance to come. And it's good because he has given you citizenship in heaven where your Savior awaits. So all of this imagery of the goodness of God's sovereign grace is front-loaded in verse 6 before he actually gets to the main point. All of this needs to be understood before Paul gets to his main idea. But before we get there to his main point, we need to understand and remember that for the Philippians and for us too, so much of what they faced by uh, human standards appears to be anything but good. It seems like a lot of really bad stuff is happening to them. For example, Paul's imprisonment. I mean, that seems kind of bad. If God was good, wouldn't Paul be freely planting churches where he wanted to? Couldn't he get to Spain like he wanted to? and start a church planning movement there? Surely wouldn't God's good plan involve that? You know, certainly if this was a good work, 
Why would God allow envious and ambitious, self-interested preachers pit themselves against Paul? Paul talks about some preaching out of envy and selfish ambition in this letter and pitting themselves. If you don't want to follow Paul, follow me. There's this kind of party or political spirit going on. Surely if this was a good work, God wouldn't let these things happen. Surely if this was a good work, Judaizers wouldn't come in coercing Christians to go back to the Old Testament law or false teachers wouldn't be attacking the church and saying what you're believing is a lie or misguided at best. Surely if this was a good work, the Christians there wouldn't have to lose their community status for being Christians. Surely if it was a good work, they would not now be called enemies of the state by the Roman Empire and by the Jews as well. Surely if this was a good work, earthly-minded apostates would not now become enemies of the cross. And certainly if this was a good work from God, there wouldn't be trouble that we have to share in. And you can just hear the false teachers saying these things to the Christians at Philippi, just as false teachers say such things to weak-minded Christians and vulnerable Christians today. God doesn't will suffering, they would say. God wouldn't will these bad things. If bad things are happening, there must be something wrong with you. That's the message of false teachers then and now. That's why Paul is anchoring the Christians back into the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And in verse 29, Paul goes on to say, not only is your faith granted, but also your sufferings. In verse 29, Paul says, For it has been granted you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So part of God's sovereign plan for the Philippian Christians, as well as us today, is suffering. And that's not an accident. That is part of God's plan. It has been granted. It has been gifted to you, not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. To be engaged in the same conflict that Paul is facing. And that's really important for us as Christians to know that our human nature is to think if conflict is now happening, I must be doing something wrong or our church must be doing something wrong. But in fact, it is the opposite, that when you become a child of God, you are enlisted for suffering, for the spiritual warfare that... It wasn't just the apostles like Paul that were waging, but for Christians, Christian parents, men, women, and children were all enlisted into the Lord's army and granted for suffering. You know, when Paul was converted, 
We read in the book of Acts, there was a, a, a Christian man named Ananias who was to go find Paul, who at that time was called Saul. And if, you, if you're familiar with Saul's life, before he was a Christian, he was a persecutor of the church. You know, he stood by and held the, the cloaks while Stephen was stoned to death, one of the first deacons of the church. And Paul was standing there supporting that stoning. And so Ananias is terrified to go find this guy because he thinks he's going to kill him too. But the Lord tells Ananias that Paul has been now appointed to be a gospel to the, an apostle to the Gentiles. But also, God's going to reveal to Paul how he is going to suffer for the Lord's namesake. In Acts 9.13, the Lord says to Ananias, uh, or it's, it says, but Ananias answered to the Lord after the Lord spoke to him. Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul was appointed for suffering as we are as well. His sufferings, his imprisonments, his beatings, his floggings, the, the shipwrecks, all the, the whole list of sufferings that Paul gives in some of his letters was by God's appointment for the glory of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells the Philippians this same divine truth. It has been granted to you not only to believe, but also that you would suffer for his name's sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So to review, both faith and suffering is a gift of God. And that's at the heart of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And that's what Paul uses to front load this encouragement that he wants to give to the Philippian church. This is God's good gift to this local church in Philippi and to ours as well here in Ulan and Stavanger. Both your faith and your suffering is from God, and it is good. So the honeymoon might be over, but you are right where God wants you to be. You are right where he wants you to be. One of the great things about making through the honeymoon stage is that you actually get to begin the real work now. All the fun of the just kind of the norming and together has faded away. This is now where the real work begins. So as we celebrate one year for Bepeko, the real work has just started. You know, you thought the hard work was setting up the church and getting all the equipment and figuring out who does what, but the real work begins now. It's just like getting married. You know, that, that excitement, that idealism is there at the beginning. You have all these hopes and dreams for what you'll do as a married couple. You have all these ideals because you're young. But then 
reality sets in and you have to make the choice. And to be successful, you need to get down to the business of being a family and running a household. And that's where the real work begins. And as I look back on my own marriage, uh, and I'm sure Deborah feels the same way, I know you do, is that those early years are fun, but we had so many ideals that we kind of laugh about now. We had so many things we thought we should be doing that it's humorous now. But the real joys of our marriage have been the things that we bring with us, with the kids, with where the Lord has brought us, even places like here in Norway. Those are the real things, but those were the really hard things to do. Those are the things that involved a lot of suffering and tears and trials, but those are the things you cherish. And it's going to be the same as a church. As we look back on what the Lord does over the years, it's going to be those hard moments that we'll actually see as the real turning points in our life as a church together. It's going to be those things that solidify us and anchor us together. Those are the things that come (coughs) when we stay together, when we know that God is sovereign and that he's faithfully using these things for our good. You know, my dad was a, a church planter And then he stayed. He was at the church for 32 years after that, which is somewhat unusual for ministers today. Sadly, ministers often uh, rotate out a lot quicker than that. But I remember my dad telling me that it was year seven, year number seven, where he really felt that the church plant got off the ground, where there was a unified vision and there were teams and people serving in the church uh, and there is a collective sense of momentum. So these years that face both of our churches and our denomination together are critical years for us because these are the years where we're really churning out what will be the future. And it's going to involve hardship and it's going to involve suffering. It's also going to involve a lot of joyful moments as well. But we need to be determined to serve and stand together. And Paul's going to get into more of that as the letter of Philippians goes on. But in order to have this confident joy, it begins with being anchored in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. God began this work in us. You as a Christian and as us as a church, he began this work. And if he began it, there's no better place than where we would want to be. Amen? Yeah. So now, all of that is simply said to get to the main point that Paul wants to get to in the second part of this verse. And this will be our second point as well. We have confident joy because, number two, God will finish the good work that he began in us at the day of Christ. God will finish the good work in us at the day of Christ. God does not forget about his projects. God does not forget about them. We've been talking to our kids a lot about completing projects. You know, there's, I think we left this morning and there was a bowl of cereal still left on the table. It didn't get, I'm looking at which kid it was that, that did that. You know, laundry gets left out, books get left out, and then you go back. Who left this out? I don't know. 
Nobody know. It's always Mr. Nobody. So Mr. Nobody is another member of our family. So we've been talking to our kids about completing projects. Uh, and we, we call it um, completing the circle. You know, going all the way. Once you finish with something, put it, put it back. And Deborah and I joke about that because there are some members in the extended family that are well known for beginning like remodeling projects and taking 15 years to finish, finish the project. Uh, and things like that. And we, we, by nature, are a little bit like that. We don't like to finish what we begin. We're not great at follow-through. But God does not have this problem. God finishes what he begins. And that's Paul's main point in verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul wants the Philippian church to know that God will see them through to the end. He wants the Philippians to find their joy and their confidence in Christians in the midst of suffering in that, that God has not abandoned them. And God has not abandoned you either. He's not abandoned us. He will finish the work. He wants you to know that everything will be okay. This is like Paul giving us a big hug when we feel really bad and saying, it's going to be okay. But when Paul says it, it's not wishful thinking. It's the truth. God will finish the work that he started in you and that he started in us. And why do the Philippians need to know this? They need to know it, as I've said already, because Paul's in chains. And they are facing persecution. False teachers are attacking them. I mean, it's great that they didn't have social media back then. But false teachers are literally going from town to town, slandering Paul and the churches that he's planting the false teachers, this is the way the devil likes to work. The false teachers with their false gospel are saying Paul's a false teacher teaching a false gospel. De the devil loves to call other people the devil. It's one of his great tactics. And that's going on. And you, beloved, if you hold firm to the word of God, people are going to call you devils in this society. They will call you hateful and odious. The things that you believe. You don't have to watch the TV for more than a minute or two to find your worldview being called evil. And it can be discouraging. What happens when we get discouraged? It's easy to give up. That's our natural response. Being a Bible-believing Christian is not easy. It's like swimming against the current in one of these mighty Norwegian rivers when the snow melts. You know, I love driving this road because you see the, the, wa the power of the water rushing down to the stream. And being a Christian is like swimming against that tide. And when you're discouraged, it's so easy just to throw your hands up and whoosh, get washed downstream. And if we're not anchored in the sovereignty of God and this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints that God will preserve you, it's so easy to give up. And I want you to note for your own 
I want you to put this as an arrow in your quiver. That these doctrines of the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints are odious doctrines to false teachers. They hate these doctrines because the devil works by making you discouraged. The way the enemy works is to get you down so that you will doubt God. He delights in making you doubt the goodness of God. He delights in making you doubt that God is still with you. He wants you to be discouraged because it's when you're down that he can come in for the kill. Therefore, it's no accident that the idea of joy is such a central theme in this letter to the church at Philippi. Because joy is the mighty weapon we have against the enemy And biblical, thank you, brother, Christian joy is rooted in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints. So I find it remarkable that almost all false teachers today deny these doctrines. If you listen to false, I wouldn't encourage you to do so. But if you listen to false teachers on the TV or on the radio, they regularly say, God doesn't will suffering for your life. And if suffering's happening in your life, there must be something wrong with your faith. That's a a common theme in false teaching. And it's no accident because those false teachers are working for the devil who wants you to be vulnerable to their manipulations. So if you want to experience the full joy and security of Christianity, you have to have sound doctrine. And I've said it a few times recently to our congregation that one of the biggest breakthroughs in your life as a Christian to experience full joy is to come to embrace the sovereignty of God, that it is God who gives you faith and that it is God who will preserve you for the day of Christ. To put Philippians 1.6 in our own words, we could say, God's got this. God's got this. Sigva, I think you have a, a, some, uh, uh, a picture up on your, the wall in your, in your house that says, I've got this, God. And that's really the, that's really the heart of Philippians 1.6, isn't it? That's what Paul wants you to know. I've got this. Paul's, God's got this. But if God's got this, does that mean then we should kick back and relax? Okay, God's sovereign. God will preserve us. We don't need to do anything. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And this gets to the mystery of grace. One of the great mysteries of Scripture is that God commands us to do what only he can do. Did you follow me on that? God commands us to do what only he can do. So he calls us to believe But only God can give us faith to believe. So it's a mystery. Likewise, the Bible calls us to persevere in the faith. But Scripture also says that it's God who preserves us. And it's a mystery. And it's a tension. But I want to tell you that this is only an apparent tension. Paul understood that while God sovereignly works in us, to protect us 
and to preserve us for the day of glory, it feels like we're doing the work. It feels like we're doing it. And Paul expresses this reality in, in places like 1 Corinthians 15, 10, where he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Speaking of the other apostles, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul was working hard, harder than any of the other apostles to faithfully follow Christ. And he says, but it wasn't I, it was the grace of God at work in me. So while our confident joy as Christian is rooted in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and that he will preserve us to the day of Christ, that doesn't mean we should just let go and just assume everything is going to be okay. Because the way God preserves us is also by us following his commands. So we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all of the solas that we talk about in the Reformation. But when God is at work in us, when he gives us his spirit, it also changes how we live. And God uses those things to give us assurance and joy as believers. And that's what Paul goes on to do in Philippians. And so I want to conclude in a third point to give you, this is more of a rapid fire kind of list of applications but 13 ways to apply Philippians 1.6 from Paul's letter. And this is going to be very brief. But 13 ways to apply this reality that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. And these are things that the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians to do. And all of these action points flow out of this doctrine from Philippians 1.6. So number one is to be gospel-centered. Number one, be gospel-centered. And I'll, Philippians 1.27. And you can write these verses down and you can look at them later. If any of them hit you particularly, is something you need to meditate on today or in this season of life. Number one, be gospel-centered. Or in other words, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says in verse 27 of chapter 1. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because God's got this, we must conform our lives to the character of Christ and his gospel. Number two, strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a call to unity. In, cha in verse, or chapter 1, verse 27b, Paul goes on saying, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a call to unity. This is a call to like when the Roman troops would go into battle, they would link their shields together, moving forward. And this is the image that Paul is drawing up here. You are going into battle, and to survive, you need to stand united together. Linked arms, linked shields together. Because God's got this, we must strive for unity 
for the gospel ministry. Number three, be fearless. Be fearless. Chapter 1, verse 28, Paul says, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Because God's got this, we have no reason to fear the enemy. We have no reason to fear whether that's the state, whether that's other believers who are accusing you, or people in the workplace, bosses, family members, spouses. Because God's got this, we have no reason to fear the enemy. Number four, follow Jesus' servant example. In chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he goes on how he became obedient even to the point of death. Because God's got this, we can take on the vulnerable role of being a servant. Because God's got this, we can open ourselves up to the world in love, knowing that they might shoot arrows right back at you. But because God's got this, we can follow Jesus' servant example that was obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. Number five, we can give our lives as Christians to reverent work. Reverent work. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here Paul brings that, that tension again, that God is the one working salvation out in you, but yet he can at the same time command the Christians to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you. Because God's got this, we should take our callings and daily activities seriously with an eye that God is in them and working through them so that your work, whether you're changing a diaper or whether you're teaching a class or doing business, you are doing a divine activity as a Christian. God's working in you, so do it with fear and trembling. Number six, don't grumble or dispute. We should do life without whining. In Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Because God's got this, because he's working in you and is completing the work, we have zero cause to whine about it or to grumble or to complain, lest we be like the Israelites who wandered in the desert and were banished from the promised land. We have zero cause for grumbling or disputing. And my kids know how hard that is for me to do that. 
but if we want to live consistently with our beliefs and what we teach and what we preach, we need to strive to live without grumbling or complaining because God's got this. Number seven, because God's got this, we must be word-centered. We must be word-centered. In chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Because God's got this, we need to hold fast to his word and follow it and obey it and teach it no matter what the cost. And there may come a point where there's a much steeper cost than what we're even facing right now to be a Bible-believing Christian. But because God's got this, we can hold fast to the word of life. Number eight, we can rejoice and be glad. In both chapter 2, verse 18, and chapter 4, verse 4, Paul highlights the importance of joy as Christians. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. When we go in public and when we are sitting down, coming home from work, we should be known for joy. When we wake up and get out of bed in the morning, joy should be the first thing that comes out of our mouths and that rings true in our hearts. Because God's got this, joy is our continual gift. And it's a shame when we refuse it. Because God's got this, we never need be without joy. Number nine, honor and help faithful workers for the gospel ministry. This is another thing that Paul says working out of chapter one, verse six. And in chapter two and chapter four, he talks about honoring those who are faithfully laboring with him. And he talks about a couple women named Euodia and Syntyche, who are, Paul calls his true companions to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Because God's got this. We don't have to be just focused on our own little thing like a horse with blinders on. We can serve others who are in the gospel ministry. And in fact, in laying our life down for others, we find that actually the needs we have are being met as well. Because God's got this, we ought to gladly assist those ministers and servants who are laboring for the gospel ministry. And I will say personally, that's one of the greatest joys of laboring with Hovar and Tomas and, and the Bebeko congregation by extension. And I know you guys do the same for us. It's like this very service this morning is an example of that. And it gives me great joys. I'm sure it does for you too. Number 10, look out for false teachers. 
Paul calls us to be watchful. In chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the Judaizers. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So there are all these people saying, if you really want to be a child of God, you need to follow the Old Testament law and be circumcised, follow the food laws, follow the Sabbath regulations, and all this. And there were those being tempted and persecuted and and so on and so forth by these Judaizers. But because God's got this, we must be watchful, knowing that the enemy will do all he can to destroy the church and to destroy pure doctrine. The very fact that God has this means that the devil is amping up his warfare to throw us off. Number 11, follow the example of godly leaders. Paul shares his example to the Philippian church in chapter 3, and I won't read all of it, but he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Because God's got this. Let's follow those that God has placed before us as leaders and examples of how we should live godly lives in an evil world. Number 12, Be reasonable and prayerful, not anxious. In other words, be confident. Paul says in chapter 4, verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because God's got this. There's no room left for anxiety or worry. There's probably no more common affliction in modern society than anxiety and depression. How many times during the week do you get up feeling anxious about something? Or you get in the shower and you're just sitting there chewing on some problem or worry that you have. Because God's got this. There's no room left anxiety or worry. You don't need medication to deal with anxiety. You need a firm belief in the doctrine of God's sovereignty, who's doing all things for your good. Finally, number 13, fix your minds on that which is praiseworthy. In chapter 4, verse 8, after he tells them not to be anxious, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Because God's got this. Our thought life, our heart life, ought to be dominated by the things of God, including the doctrines of God's sovereignty, the perseverance of the saints, gospel-centered living, 
we can throw off anxiety and the chains and the shackles that weigh heavy on us and fix our minds on Christ and the things in heaven. So those are just 13 examples from Philippians of how Paul applies this doctrine that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So, beloved, God has this. He's got this church planning project. He's got your life project in his hands. And it's a good work. He who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ. And because God's got this, we do not need to go about in collective gloom or collective anxiety or worry. We can be joyful always. God is our keeper. He never slumbers or sleeps. We're going to sing that in a moment as Thomas comes up to conclude the service for us from Psalm 121. The Lord is our keeper. He never sleeps. He never stumbles. He never, uh, he never loses sight of you. He's with you when you go out. He's with you when you come in. You might be persecuted, but in the eyes of God, no harm will befall you. Because God's got this. We can rejoice in good times and in bad as Christians and as partakers of these church plants, knowing that God will finish what he began. God's got this. Amen.